Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Brilliant. I think all of you probably know me, but if you don't, my name is Anna Drew. I'm a regular member of the congregation here at Pippin Jim's. <laughs> or an irregular member, should you wish. <laughs> This Sunday is the first in our new series of talks about Jesus' resurrection appearances. As a church, we're working our way together through this book, 40 Days with Jesus, and it's by Dave Smith. Um, If you haven't already got one of these, there's a stack of them at the back of the church. I think they're free. I didn't pay for my copy. Um, So help yourself and uh, join in. The idea is that each Sunday over the next few weeks, we'll be unpicking the passage that, as a church, in our house groups and individually, we'll have been unpicking in the week before. So that's the ad break over. Our story begins in darkness. Mary is up early to visit her friend's tomb. Mark's Gospel tells us that she took spices with her to anoint Jesus' body. A final act of love and respect. But she's horrified at what she finds there. The stone that sealed the tomb has been moved, and she quickly jumps to the conclusion that the body must have been stolen. She rushes to find Peter and the mysteriously named disciple whom Jesus loved but that's a whole other sermon, who raced back down to see what's occurred. But if I may say, it seems to me that the menfolk menfolk are flipping useless on this particular occasion. (laughs) We're told that they saw and believed, but it's not clear exactly what it was they did believe, presumably that Mary had been right and that the body had indeed been taken. They came, they had a look, they weren't sure what to make of it all, so they went home again. Thanks a bunch, lads. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh. But Mary can't just go back home. She can't let this one go. Not only has her friend and teacher been taken from her in a gruesome death, there isn't even any body to testify that he ever existed at all. There's nothing for her to anoint. She can't even fulfil the obligations of her grief. She's been robbed of the opportunity to mourn properly. It echoes for me those terrible cases that we've all seen on the news over the years where a victim has been murdered, we know they've been murdered, but their body is never found and it leaves their family and their friends in this interminable state of limbo, locked in their grief. And I find this first account of Jesus' resurrection completely heartbreaking. Reading the text, you can feel Mary's grief at the disappearance of her teacher. You can hear her sobs. You can taste her tears. For me, that's the overwhelming emotion I find here. What more could they take from her? Forget the disciple whom Jesus loved. Perhaps Mary was the disciple who loved Jesus. And how privileged we are to know that the story doesn't end there with an empty tomb and a woman weeping on her own. Matthew's Gospel tells us that it's Jesus who says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
And there's another Bible passage that springs to mind for me here. And it's one from Isaiah. It's actually the one that Jesus claims as his mission statement at the beginning of Luke's Gospel when he goes to the uh, synagogue. He's very young and he reads from the scroll. But I'm going to read it to you from the Old Testament and you can find it in Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for all who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. I'll say a bit again. To comfort all who mourn, to provide for all who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. And it all begins with Mary, alone in the garden, weeping for her friend who has died and disappeared. Jesus' timing here is really interesting, isn't it? He waits until the men have gone away before he puts in an appearance. They don't even get to see an angel. Poor lads. And it's funny, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't appear first to the unnamed disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And he's got no regard for authority, but we probably should know that by now. He doesn't choose first to appear to Herod, for example, or to the high priests who were ultimately responsible for his death. And that must have been really tempting, because can you imagine the look on their faces? Thought you got rid of me? You thought wrong. He doesn't even make the simple and obvious choice of appearing first to a man. In first century Palestine, the testimony of a woman was undeniably inferior to that of a man. And to our shame, it's worth saying that it's still true in many parts of the world today. And in Mark's Gospel, we're told that the disciples simply refused to believe Mary when she told them that Jesus was back. I wonder what they would have said if it had been Peter that came to them with the same message. But Jesus chose Mary. And I truly believe that God still chooses today to work most powerfully through those who are on the margins of our society. The people we might least expect to be reliable witnesses to the power of the resurrection. If this story bears any truth, we have no excuse for ignoring them. No excuse for sidelining their stories and refusing to hear their opinions. I read this first resurrection appearance of Jesus as a stark challenge to each one of us about the people we choose to value and the people we choose to dismiss. And then, the moment when Mary realises who it is that is standing before her. That is just heart-stoppingly 
beautiful. Because it's not until Jesus calls Mary by her name that she knows who this is. But in that instant, she is certain that the man in front of her is Jesus. And it brings to mind for me that image of the good shepherd who knows each of his sheep by name and whose sheep know his voice. A few chapters earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Mary recognises Jesus because she has already learnt to trust his voice. I sometimes wonder if I've forgotten the sound of Jesus' voice. If I sometimes fail to spot where he's at work today, even when it's right in front of my eyes. And people say, well, why didn't she recognise him? Why didn't she know him? If, if she was so, uh, so intimate with him, if she spent so much time, if she was so aggrieved, why didn't she see that this was her friend standing in front of her and not some gardener? Well, I think perhaps the reason for that is as simple as the fact that she wasn't expecting to see him there, breathing, talking, calling her name. Because dead men do not come back to life. It was as true then as it is today. This is a fact that humanity has been dealing with for millennia. Dead men do not come back to life. No matter how special they are or have been to their loved ones. No matter how much we wish it were otherwise. It's an undisputed fact of life. And if you've been coming to church for a number of years like me, it's easy to forget how simply absurd the claim that Jesus rose from the grave is. Not how absurd it sounds, how absurd it is. And yet the church claims, we claim, I claim this to be true. I find this deeply unsettling. If the story of Christ's resurrection fails to stop us dead in our tracks, we have failed to comprehend the enormity of it. The moment the resurrection becomes ordinary to us, then we've missed the point. If we tame the resurrection, try to explain it away as if it makes perfect sense, put it in a box with a label on, of course God chose to act that way. Then we rob it of its power. We deny the very action of God by domesticating him in order that we might feel more comfortable. (coughs) The gospel isn't supposed to be comfortable. Resurrection isn't supposed to be comfortable. Faith in Jesus was never meant to be comfortable. And I'm of the opinion that we should leave this church every single week with our feet itching, knowing that there's something to be done, that we're uncomfortable for a reason. That's why 
our first response to the resurrection must surely be astonishment. Because when we think we've really understood it, when we think we've got it nailed down, then we simply must be wrong. And what's the result of all this? What Jesus says to Mary, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The barriers between us and our Creator God have been removed. We can relate to the God in the same way that Jesus can. We have been adopted into his family. I find that even more astonishing. The question all this leaves me with, and the question that I want to encourage you to take away to consider this week, is this. If we believe in the resurrection of Christ... If the resurrection is the context in which we live and breathe and go about our daily business, if the resurrection is our reality, what difference will it make? The answer that it makes no difference is surely not an option. This week, Giles Fraser, who's a vicar in London, offered what I think is is one helpful response to the resurrection. And I'd like to share it briefly with you now. I promise we're nearly there. Writing in The Guardian, he spoke of the resurrection as a supreme act of defiance. He said, We've got no money. A heating system that doesn't work. A church hall that was recently burned out by bored teenagers. And most challenging of all, a community that is not really a community, but often a place people simply pass through. Even the old flats of the notorious Haygate estate have now been demolished, and their long-term residents pushed further out of town to make way for the younger and the wealthier. Change and decay in all around I see. All this sounds pretty miserable, but the resurrection is the name we give to the multiple ways we push back against the darkness. Between Christmas and Easter, we opened up the church to the homeless, with local people, both churchgoers and non-churchgoers, teaming up to cook food and provide guests with a safe place to sleep. And that happened in Medway and in this very church too. One couple cuddled up together under the Lady Chapel altar. I did breakfast duty with bacon and eggs for 20. Do I believe in the resurrection? Of course I do. And I believe in it by frying bacon and refusing to give up. Oh, I love that. If I could have that tattooed on my forehead, that'd be amazing. (laughs) Don't tell Jim. (laughs) So we stand in the garden beside Mary, offended and aggrieved at the empty tomb, astonished at the man who stands before us, calling our name. Let's pray. Lord of the empty tomb, 
strip away what we think we know. Take away our preconceptions and our clever theories. Leave us simply astonished at your grace and love for us. Father, comfort all who mourn and send us away with itchy feet. Amen.